Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of the American Social Fabric podcast titled Jefferson's Response from France. Welcome back again to the eighth episode of the American Social Fabric Podcast. Uh, Hello to everybody who has listened before and is coming back to listen again. I really appreciate it. And uh, welcome to everybody who's new and trying this out for the first time. I really hope that you find some value in this podcast and enjoy going through foundational documents and the ideas of our founding fathers. In last week's episode, we covered and went through a letter sent by James Madison to Thomas Jefferson on October 24th, 1787. In his letter to Jefferson, Madison summarized the Constitutional Convention and kind of the thoughts of the delegates at the convention, as well as some of the main points of the Constitution that they ultimately agreed upon and put forward for ratification from the states. So this week, we'll be going through Jefferson's response to Madison. Jefferson's response comes from Paris, and the letter is dated December 20th, 1787. It's always interesting when looking at these these old documents that are dated, the, the time lag between when something's sent and when it's received, and then when a response gets sent back. I mean, here it's two months difference, basically the letter crossing the ocean. And a big part of these letters, which I leave out, is the authors describing the other letters they've sent and kind of where they're at in transit. So that's very interesting. In the age of email, that's not something we're really concerned with. We almost have too much communication and too instant of communication. So before we jump into the letter, like last week, I would like to give kind of a super high overview of Thomas Jefferson's life and his like career so that you can get an idea of where he's at and the context of him writing this letter. So Jefferson was born April 13th, 1743. And at the time of the revolution, Jefferson represented Virginia at the Continental Congress that adopted the declaration. In fact, he was a principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and during the Revolution, he ended up as the second governor of Virginia from 1779 to 81. After the Revolution, he was appointed Minister to France in 1785, and so the letter that we're going to go through today, he's currently the Minister of France, and he's responding to Madison, who was back in America. In 1790, he then becomes George Washington's Secretary of State, So Secretary of State to the first president of the U.S. right after the passage of the Constitution and the ratification by the states. Uh, He ran for president after George Washington and lost to Adams in 1796. And because of the way that the election system worked back then, Jefferson became Adams vice president. Jefferson then challenged Adams in 1800 and became the third president of the United States. Jefferson would ultimately die fittingly on July 4th, 1826, the same day as John Adams, believe it or not. But given Jefferson's role in drafting the Declaration of Independence, it almost seems like fate that he would ultimately die on the date that his document was signed, although many years later. And with that brief overview out of the way, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Jefferson's letter to Madison and 
Jefferson's initial thoughts on the Constitutional Convention and the draft Constitution. So Jefferson opens his letter with some thanks to James Madison and also some updates of his own. Uh, one interesting thing that I found was that he discusses kind of like ciphers in the letters. So I think some of the general updating they're doing about like uh, crops and things like that and rice packages might be uh, code for other things, which is something be interesting to look into and find a little more about. But that's just one little aside. He then moves into, into his discussion of the draft constitution. Uh, he outlines some things he likes and some things he doesn't like. And he works in some of his own suggestions for changes um, in that discussion. So first of all, we'll, we'll move on to his likes. The first of Jefferson's likes that I found interesting was that he liked that the federal government could carry on peaceably without the need for state legislature input. Uh, this is something that I touched on last week and something that I had a conversation with about my father after the episode. It's interesting to, when you read something that states something you've kind of known for a long time, but you don't really appreciate or, or you, you don't really think about. Um, and that is the ability of the federal government, you know, to carry on without state input. And the fact that the people of the United States, you know, U.S. citizens vote for the federal government, but the federal government doesn't get the approval. Uh, it's not really. So this is, you know, uh, based on these two letters, definitely something that was intentional in the founding fathers. But it is also something kind of surprising, I guess, or like I've said, it's something you, you take for granted and you kind of know, but you don't really think about. And it is significant that the federal government could pass laws impacting the states, binding the states, and restricting the state's actions without any real input from them. Jefferson's next like, or really it's two likes together, is first that the federal Congress can levy taxes, and second, that the general population votes on the legislature that taxes them. So effectively, he's saying he likes the fact that the, the citizens of the U.S. together vote for the Congress that taxes them, thus satisfying the you know no taxation without representation motto of the early United States. However, the thing I find interesting, and it's a caveat to these points, and I'll just read the full quote here. So he says, I like the power given the legislature to levy taxes. And for that reason, solely approve of the greater house being chosen by the people directly. For though I think a house chosen by them will be very ill-qualified to legislate for the union, for nations, etc., yet this evil does not weigh against the good of preserving inviolate the fundamental principle that the people are not to be taxed but by representatives chosen immediately by themselves. Here, I think the thing that's interesting is he's generally not in favor of the citizens voting for the, for the legislature directly not voting for their representatives. And I think this is kind of a fundamentally anti or un-American idea now. If you were to say, okay, now we're, we're moving voting for Congress people or you know, members of the House and the Senate. Um, I know back then they didn't vote for the Senate, but let's say that now they passed a bill that said, you know, or they tried to do an amendment saying, um, now state representatives vote for all members of Congress. You know, it'd be an outrage. It'd be considered something, you know, like I said, fundamentally un-American. However, Thomas Jefferson himself is saying he thinks, you know, people do a pretty bad job of it or will do a pretty bad job of picking the representatives. And that was pretty shocking to me. So Jefferson's next point, it also surprised me, but in a different way. So in the last episode, I kind of skimmed over one of the, the ultimate decisions that the Constitutional Congress came to. And that was the fact that the, you know, large states and the small states were arguing over representation and power in the legislature. And that the ultimate compromise was that the House would be made up of representatives based on population of the states, 
and the Senate would be based on, you know, equal representation of the states of two senators per state. Um, to me, this seemed kind of like a expected compromise, or at least a one that makes sense, not surprising in any way, even if it wasn't intended at the start of the Constitutional Convention. However, this is a point that Jefferson kind of calls out and that one that he really likes as a, as a good compromise. Um, again, this is kind of surprising. It seems like a, a reasonable way to do things. But uh, again, this is another one of his likes. The final like of Jefferson that I want to cover, um, and I'll read here, it says, I like the negative given to the executive with a third of either house, though I should have liked it better had the judiciary been associated for that purpose. So I think here, um, Jefferson is saying that he likes the veto and that he wishes that the courts were involved in the veto, kind of in line with his thinking. Um, you know, the courts do kind of get that power eventually. You know, one of the first seminal cases that you learn in constitutional law in law school is, you know, Marbury v. Madison. In that court case, the Supreme Court saying, you know, we as the highest court in the land have the right to render a law unconstitutional. And that in and of itself is a form of veto. It's not like a direct based, you know, a direct veto based on policy concerns of the court, but it is a form of control over the other branches that the Supreme Court has. And that wasn't something clear before that court case. That was kind of Supreme Court drawn the line in the sand and saying, you know, we do have this authority and, you know, deal with it, basically. You know, you think about like, what if the executive, you know, the president at the time or the legislature or anybody basically said, no, you don't ignore them or they try and pass an amendment or try and pass a law that prevents the Supreme Court from doing this. And let's say they succeed, you know, the, the course of American history would be wildly different than it is today. And with that, that wraps up the major likes of Jefferson from this letter that we want to cover. Um, and let's move on to the dislikes. So the first major dislike that Jefferson has of the draft constitution is a lack of Bill of Rights. Although, of course, this would be added later in the process. Um, I think it's interesting that many of the rights that he wants in the Bill of Rights ultimately end up there. Uh, these include the freedom of religion, the freedom of press, protection against standing armies, restrictions on, against monopolies, the eternal and unremitting force of the habeas corpus laws, and trials by jury in all matters of fact triable by the laws of the land and not by the laws of the nation. Now, the one from this list that actually caught my eye and the one I looked into more was the his Jefferson's desire for a restriction on monopolies. So I wasn't sure if this meant like political monopolies or like especially corporate monopolies. And it turns out uh, he was referring to corporate monopolies. So it's kind of interesting that one of the most uh, individual rights, states' rights, known founding fathers was actually against monopolies, against business monopolies, and wanted protections against those monopolies enshrined in the Bill of Rights. I find that fascinating, and I think that it it would be interesting to have something like business related or outside of purely you know personal or expression type rights. You know, freedom of religion, freedom of press. You know, those are all kind of things you're you're free to express. But in this case, it would be a business restriction against effectively corporate action. And I think that it shows even then their concern for these type of, of large, powerful organizations that they would be willing to try and enshrine it in the Bill of Rights. So continuing on this point, and if you remember back to, I believe, episode two, uh, James Wilson's speech, where he's talking about the fact that the Bill of Rights is unnecessary because if you try and lay out certain rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. The inverse of that is that 
some rites are not enshrined, in Wilson's opinion, was by leaving it completely open that there couldn't be an argument that some rights are able to be restricted. Jefferson actually speaks directly against Wilson's point here, and he says, To say, as Mr. Wilson does, that a Bill of Rights was not necessary because all is reserved in the case of the federal government, which is not given, while in the particular ones all is given, which is not reserved, might do for the audience to whom it was addressed, but it is surely a gratis dictum opposed by the, for the strong forces from the body of the instrument, as well as from the omission of the clause of our present confederation, which had declared that in express terms. So in effect, Jefferson's saying Wilson's wrong and his argument's bad because the inference that Wilson says exists, the fact that, you know, all things are reserved unless granted, uh, is not really supported by the Constitution because it, I guess the Constitution does grant pretty broad powers to Congress. To, so to say that they're somehow restricted in acting is not accurate. And he also says that the Articles of Confederation, the current document governing the U.S., has such expressed terms in it, you know, saying that, you know, right, no rights can be infringed unless expressly stated. And he says that even with something that vague, it doesn't help and it's not applicable. So that is why Jefferson wants a Bill of Rights is because the language that those like James Wilson are relying on is ineffective. So towards the end of his discussion, Jefferson does write one quote that I really like the spirit of, and I would just like to read it here. Um, doesn't really have any arguments as far as before, for or against any particular right. He says, let me add that a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, general or particular, and what no just government should refuse or rest on interference. So moving to the second dislike Jefferson lists in his letter, um, he says, and the quote, is the abandonment in every instance of the necessity of rotation in office, and most particularly in the case of the president. Experience concurs with reason in concluding that the first magistrate will always be re-elected if the Constitution permits it. He is then an officer for life. Jefferson then continues on and talks about uh, presidents who lose an election calling foul, basically. He says, if once elected and at a second or third election is outvoted by one or two votes, he will pretend false votes, foul play, hold possession of the reins of government, be supported by the states voting for him, especially if they are central ones, lying in a compact body themselves and separating their opponents, and they will be aided by one nation of Europe, while the majority are aided by the other. Here Jefferson's effectively saying, once you have a president that is in power, he will use everything he can to cry foul and say that he actually won the election. And he's saying that he will be aided by states that are on his side already. And therefore, you have, would have the breakdown of the entire democratic system right there. We were lucky for a long time to avoid this. Most of the presidents honored the George Washington two-term issue, or two-term president, I should say, um, you know, with the obvious exception of certain ones like FDR, who were effectively president for life once they became president. And then we didn't, really didn't have any issues with presidents crying foul and trying to say the election was rigged until also recently. But... It's interesting that Jefferson highlighted this as a problem prior to our government even forming. Another thing I find interesting is that he had a lot of concern with foreign governments trying to use our own system against us and keep people that they like in seats of power. 
um, I guess it would make sense, you, you know, under his arguments that if you have a president that can stay forever and, you know, one of the major powers in the world, you know, which wasn't the U.S. back then, it was the European powers, found a compliant president or officer, they would want to do what they can to keep that person in power. Now, Jefferson's remedy for this is, is pretty interesting. He wanted a necessary rotation in office, you know, effectively like a term limit on where the president or how often the president can be elected. Um, he said, by doing this, you kind of make it unknown rotation. You make it boring. And once you have boring, then you can have fair elections. Jefferson is very against relying on votes of the people or votes of the parliament or Congress or what have you to remove the president on periodic terms or on good or bad conduct terms, because he feels that this is an ineffective check on power. He kind of uses other nations and in history to back this up. And he says, the king of Poland is removable every day by the diet, yet he is never removed. So that second dislike is the second major dislike of Jefferson that he talks about in his rather short letter to Madison. There's some additional other thoughts he has in the letter, um, you know, sprinkled here and there as far as little points of, of government and law that you may find interesting. Um, I will link a copy of the letter in the description to this podcast as well as I will put a, um, the information for the book that I'm reading it from in the uh, podcast description as well. So um, with that, let's move on to something positive. And when I say something positive or good uh, at the end of each of these episodes, I guess what I'm really looking for, what I'm really trying to share is something not related to the politics or the, the letters that I'm reading, um, just something else I found in, in media from or from a thinker or a book that I find helps, you know, change the way you look at your day and maybe approach things a little better or a little more positively. And uh, this week, this the phrase that I really liked that caught my eye is from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations 12.1. Um, quote from the book here, he says, you can enjoy this very moment, all the things that you are praying to reach by taking the long way around, if you'd stop depriving yourself of them. And basically what he's saying is if you're, if you're chasing happiness or chasing some some feeling or positive emotion or, or something anything really you, you can have it already you can be happy in this moment and you can be positive in this moment achieving some goal is not ultimately going to down the road provide that happiness there's nothing wrong with chasing goals this podcast for me is a goal however if you're not happy while you're doing it you're not going to be happy when you achieve something and on that um, i'll talk to you all next week next wednesday for another episode and next week's episode will be Cato 3 a new a article posted in the New York Journal have a good weekend everybody